This morning, I'm going to share some things with you today um, that might be a little difficult, certainly a little different. And uh, I just believe God that not only is the unction of the Holy Spirit on me to bring this, this sixth message on our signs. We see not our signs, as our text says in Psalm 79. But this particular sign is a difficult one. And, um, but I, I believe there's a message in this for us, a message of hope and a message of victory. Praise the Lord. Um, John chapter 3, verse 16. Of course, we know John 3, 16, but I'd like to read it down a little farther. For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have <clears throat> eternal life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Now, let me pause and tell you that this is a quote from Jesus. Jesus is actually preaching this. He's saying this, and it's quoted directly from him. It's not something someone's saying about him. It's something he is saying about himself, that whoever believes in him shall not be condemned, but whosoever does not believe is condemned already, because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. And this is the judgment by which they are condemned, that the light has come into the world, and men loved the darkness rather than the light, for their deeds were evil. For everyone who does evil hates the light and does not come to the light for fear that his deeds will be exposed. I've been doing a lot of thinking lately about the growing intolerance and resistance to Christianity that we see occurring in our culture and around the world. And how that some of it, some of it when you see it, is uh, misguided contempt for Christians. But some of it is simply also uh, the nature of the reaction of love for darkness against the light. In either case, persecution is one of the inevitable signs of the church. Jacob in his opening used the word, he called it prosecution, but persecution is kind of a way of prosecuting. He used that word about three times. I really alerted in my heart when he did that because it's not a term that either he or the most, most of us really use when we're exhorting or encouraging people. He's not talking about persecution, but he mentioned it three times. To me, that was significant because the next sign of the church that I want to share with you about this morning is the sign of persecution. Like any of the other signs, it is one of the signs. It's one of the signs of the church. And how you and I understand persecution and how we respond to it can make the difference between our glory and our shame. It's very important. So I, I trust that today is going to be positive, though we're dealing with a negative message. Let me begin by saying that true persecution is always about the confrontation between the Lord Jesus and sin. True Bible persecution, the kind that Jesus predicted, is not a confrontation or a reaction 
uh, to political ideologies, competing denominations, doctrinal differences, or racial biases. But it's always about the confrontation between Jesus and sin. It's always persecution is always a reaction of the darkness of sin against the light of God's word. In Mark chapter 4 in the parable of the sowers, which I call the key parable because Jesus said, if you don't understand that parable, how can you possibly unlock the understanding of any of the parables? So the understanding of the parable of the sower is something that should be the Swiss army knife of every Christian believer's understanding of Jesus' teaching. Because in that parable, Jesus says in Mark 4, 17, persecution arises on account of the word. Persecution follows the preaching of the word or the, the expression or the faith in God's word. So ultimately, we are not and we should not be persecuted for anything less than the Lord Jesus Christ. In, in John's Gospel, chapter 15, Jesus talked about persecution a little bit. And from verse 19 to 21, I'd like to read it, read to you what he said. If he's speaking to you and I, his disciples, he says, If you were of the world, the world would love its own. But because you're not of the world, I've chosen you out of the world. And because of this, the world hates you. Remember, the word that I said unto you, the servant is not greater than his Lord. If they have persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they've kept my sayings, they will keep yours also. But all these things will they do unto you for my name's sake, because they know not him that sent me. That is the root of where true persecution against Christians comes from. It is not persecution against a denomination or a particular brand of Christianity or a particular church. Ultimately, true persecution is the devil stirring up anger in the heart of someone who loves darkness and not light. And true persecution ultimately is against Christ himself. True persecution is against Jesus himself whether it's aimed at an individual Christian or the whole concept of Christianity. It's personal. It's personal with God. And that's what Jesus was trying to tell us. He said, you are my servants. You're not above the Lord. They persecute you because they persecuted me. They're persecuting you because they're trying to get to me. They are denouncing me when they denounce you. They're attacking me when they attack you. They're putting me down when they put you down. Now, we know that people are persecuted for other things. People are persecuted for their political ideologies. They're persecuted for their social behavior. They're persecuted for um, their uh, just all, all kinds of things, their practices, their behaviors. And we know that Christians are persecuted for all those different things. But what I'm trying to say to you this morning is we should live in such a way that we are eclipsed by Jesus, that he is our life, our Lord, he is everything to us, so that we don't become persecuted for anything other than Jesus. Do you understand what I'm saying to you? 
that if you are being attacked or persecuted as a Christian, but it's really for bad behavior, then it really isn't persecution. And, and later on in this message, you'll understand why that's important, that if you're persecuted, you should be persecuted for the gospel, for the word's sake. If you truly walk in the light of the gospel, it's going to cause two very distinct, distinctive reactions. Number one, um, people who are humble and have a heart for God are going to come to the light. If you walk in the light, if you manifest the light, those that want the light are going to come to the light through you. The other reaction is that the proud who hate the light, that's what Jesus said. He said that those that love darkness will persecute the light. So the second reaction is that they will eventually fight against you because of the light. They may tolerate you for a while, but per the nature of persecution is it will never remain in a truce with the light permanently. Maybe for a while, but it'll never remain permanent. Darkness will always eventually hunt out the light and persecute it. 2 Timothy 3.12 says, All who desire to live godly, everyone say desire to live godly. in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. All who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. We usually quote a shortened version of that phrase and we usually say, all who live godly in Christ Jesus shall suffer persecution. And so what happens is, sometimes people that are self-righteous, they get the idea that if I'm really holy, people are gonna persecute me because I'm, I'm clean and they're dirty. I'm holy and they're unholy. We, just the, just the uh, failure to quote that full verse the way it's written can make such a difference in what it means and what it's saying that we really go right off the path into a wrong idea. The Bible, God, the Apostle Paul never intended us to think all that live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. The persecution's not because you're living godly. The persecution's because you desire to live godly. All who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus shall suffer persecution. What do I mean by that? Well, when you desire to live godly, the devil's going to stir somebody up against you. If you truly have a desire to live godly, and living godly isn't running around and, and being acting like you're perfect. Living godly means to live close to Jesus, to be in connection with him, to not allow that connection to be broken, to let your connection with Jesus his word be the law of your life. Let his spirit lead you, guide you. Let him and your relationship with him be the place that you run to work your problems out rather than fussing and fighting and worrying and striving within yourself. That's living godly. And so when you desire to be close to the Lord, when you desire to live godly, the devil attacks your desire to live godly. And let me tell you that he attacks when you desire to live godly. Whenever you say, you know what, I'm making a decision. I'm going to get close to the Lord. I'm going to live godly in Christ Jesus. 
He's not attacking you because he thinks you'll give up that desire. He raises people up to persecute you, not because he thinks you'll change your mind, but because he's hoping that he can corrupt your desire by getting you to go chasing after that tar baby and fight with the person who's persecuting you. If he could get you to fight with the person he's stirred up to persecute you, then your desire to live godly will become corrupted, you will be distracted, you'll leave that path of righteousness, and you'll join the ranks of so many other Christians who live ineffectually and without power. The strategy of the enemy is to divide your desire to live godly. That's what persecution is designed to do. Most persecution is not about beheading people and just ending their life. Most persecution is from the devil aimed at trying to discredit living godly, living close to Jesus. To discredit it, the devil has to be very careful. He just can't go in with a sickle and just whack everybody's head off and kill everyone who's a Christian because that's going to drive people to Jesus. So what he does is persecution comes in the form of resistance and contempt and hostility in order to draw Christians into strife and to get us to react on the world's level rather than living on the level that Christ has put us on. Does that make sense to you? So true, true persecution, let me tell you something else about true persecution. True persecution can be a hard thing to, to sift and to identify when you look at all of what can be viewed as persecution or intolerance or, or um, antagonism towards Christians. It's, it's not all of it that you see is true persecution. Some of it's just Christian whining and um, Christians' inability to deal with hardship or conflict. And they, they simply raise the flag of persecution. So what separates true persecution from that other kind? It, it can be hard to detect when it's mingled with consequences for bad behavior, for example. And let me read to you what, what the Lord had Peter say to us about this in 1 Peter chapter 4. Beginning in verse 14, he says, If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you're blessed, because the Spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. Period. That is awesome. If you are insulted for the name of Christ, in other words, you are walking in Jesus to the extent that you are manifesting Him and worthy to be identified with the name of Jesus. Your behavior, your presentation is worthy to be associated with Jesus' name. And therefore, you are being insulted directly as a result of the darkness, contempt for the light. The Bible says then, you are blessed if that's happening. You're blessed because the Spirit of glory... And the Spirit of God rests on you just as it rested upon Him. Amen? Amen? But he goes on to say, But let none of you suffer as a murderer or a thief. We might say, Oh, I'm, I don't steal. I don't kill anybody. 
I've, I would never be suffering persecution as a murderer, a thief. We, we persecute murderers. We persecute thieves. But the list goes on. Or an evildoer. Or a meddler. Mm. I don't murder or steal, but I might meddle once in a while. I might gossip once in a while. The Bible says, let none of you suffer as a meddler or a person who infringes on other people's rights. One of the translations I read about a meddler is one who infringes on other people's rights. You know, you may not agree with or like, and the Bible may be in complete contradiction to a person's lifestyle or what they do, but that does not give us the call of God to go infringe on their right to be that way. People have a right to behave any way they want to because God, the judge, is going to sort out the use of their rights. He gives us rights that test us. He gives us rights and freedom to act so that our heart can make manifest what's in it. And so we don't have the right to go around and to attack everybody and meddle because we agree or disagree with their rights. There are certain behaviors that the Bible lifts up above others as behaviors that should not be tolerated in any society. Murder, thievery, those kinds of things. So there, there, is, there is the um, admonition from God to deal with those things on a social level. But as a Christian... Let none of you suffer as a thief, as an evildoer, as a meddler. But if one of you is ill-treated and suffers as a Christian, which he is contemptuously called. By the way, we love the term Christian. But 2,000 years ago when that term Christian was first brought up, it was a slur. And it was a way of calling followers of Christ. Um, it was a way of calling them out and trivializing them and marginalizing them. The term Christian was an insult. You're just a Christian. You're not a full person. You're not a real person. You're not, a, you're not somebody who is worthy of society's admiration. You're pathetic. You're a Christian, a little Jesus running around. But Christians quickly, under that terrible persecution of the first and second century, Christians quickly began to realize that well, you know what? I am a Christian. I'm no better than Christ. I'm happy to live in His shadow. I'm happy to be a dependent of Christ. And so they took on that term, and today that term has 2,000 years of history behind it that fill it out and give it some, some nobility. But it was not a noble term when it was used then. So look at what Peter says. He says, if any of you is ill-treated or suffers as a Christian, which he is contemptuously called, then let him not be ashamed that they're calling you names. But give glory to God that you are deemed worthy to suffer in that name. If they're calling you Christian, then rejoice that they've identified your problem. Your problem is that you lean on Jesus, you trust in Him. Isn't that the message of the gospel that we want the world to see? Sometimes the world is not going to focus in its lens and see the Jesus in you until they're able to persecute you and see how you take it. When they persecute you, that's when they're looking at you. And if they see Jesus there, 
See, when they persecute one another, the nasty comes out. But when they persecute a true Christian, Jesus comes out. Amen. Now listen, there is an umbrella of anointing that God has promised that will rest upon people who undergo true persecution for Christ. He says, you're blessed because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. And so there is a blessing and anointing that rests upon you when you're persecuted for the Lord Jesus Christ. We see that in the story of Stephen stoning his death, the first martyr of the church in Acts chapter 7. When it says that he was preaching the gospel in public and the Jews became so angry, it says when they heard these things, they were enraged and they ground their teeth at him. But he, full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God as they started to hit him with stones and stoned him to death. The Bible says he fell asleep. Hallelujah. I think I'll just take a nap, wake up in glory. You see, the spirit of glory rested upon him. He was being persecuted because... He wasn't out there being Stephen obnoxious, you know. Hey, I found the, the truth and, and uh, you people are all wrong and, and I can't wait to tell you how wrong you've been. Jesus, who you... See, you, we could present Jesus in a way that Jesus would never present himself. If we get persecuted for that, that's on us. That's not on Jesus. You have to be Christ-like to be truly persecuted as a Christian. Otherwise, you're just being persecuted as a as a bad church person. So, but the spirit of glory, God's ready to drop that, uh, that anointing of glory upon you. And, and as I said, persecution is one of the signs of the church. We may not like it. And we need to be very careful that when persecution happens, notice it is for the purpose of trying to hit that spot in you that makes you angry and gets you to jump sides. It's the tar baby. Persecution. When the enemy raises up persecution against you, I guarantee you, it's going to be a person that really rubs you the wrong way. Their behavior, their speech, the way they act, just, it, it just makes you automatically jump. You, you're not going to recognize it as persecution at first. You see, but the devil knows that you desire to live godly in Christ. And so he's going to send that person who's going to criticize you as a Christian. But they're going to do it in a way that makes you, tempts you to jump off sides and get into it. And when you jump, you jump out from under the spirit of glory. You jump out from under the anointing. And then they've got you. And what shame. Once they get a Christian and you realize, I shouldn't have gotten tangled up in all that. You say, boy, Pastor, you sound like somebody that's, really knows what you're talking about. I am. I have been there. I've done it. And every time I just think I hate this place. I hate, you feel disempowered. You get out from under that special blessing that the Lord puts you under. There's nothing worse for a Christian than to be criticized, condemned, or persecuted for bad behavior. For being caught, being carnal, rather than being Christ-like. Even though you may have done or said what you did, 
using Bible verses or acting like a Christian or trying to represent Jesus. You see, if you leave the light behind when you try to preach, if you leave the light behind when you try to argue for Jesus, then you're not representing Jesus. Jesus is represented by the light, not by you using a Bible. Not everyone who uses a Bible has light coming out of it. You understand what I'm saying, don't you? Let me use the remaining minutes that I have to talk about where we're headed in our nation, in our society today. And this, of course, extends beyond our borders to, I think, to nations around the world. But let's concentrate on, on our society. We need to understand where are we headed as in our culture today. We are living definitely in changing times. And, and if you have had your eyes open over the past few years, you realize that our, our society is dramatically changing and that we are in quite a transition. In America, the sentiment towards Christianity is shifting from respect and favor to suspicion and antagonism. When I first became a Christian, it was still in the time that we had enjoyed for over 200 years from the time of our forefathers when Christianity was highly respected whether you were a Christian or not. The principles of Christianity were embraced, the concepts, the ideals, even though there were plenty of hypocrites around that were uh, claiming to be Christians and doing unchristian-like things. The fact is our society as a whole had respect and regard and, and showed favor and deference towards the gospel. Something has gone terribly wrong and something has, has happened in it. We're in the process of a, of a turnover, a tremendous paradigm shift. Because the society that is rising today and not beginning, they have arrived, they're unpacking their suitcases, they're moving in and they've taken over. The society of today views Christianity with total suspicion and antagonism. And it's important that you and I understand the reason for this. It would be easy for us to just say, well, there's a spirit of Antichrist that's moving over the world and everybody hates the gospel. Everyone hates God. And while that is certainly true to a point, an oversimplified view of that might cause you and I to really miss something important that God is trying to teach us about where He wants us to stand. We need to understand what's really going on and resist the temptation to take a, a very limited and immature uh, oversimplified view of the persecution we see arising today. Remember, the enemy is a strategist. Satan is always trying to trap you and I in wrong thinking. We need to be able to stay smart, be wise as serpents, be harmless as doves. So we must understand what is happening. At its core, I believe our society is in a state of transition. And they are exchanging faith in God as the foundation of their worldview with secular progressivism. That may sound like a very fancy term. Some of you know what it means. Some of you may not. Look it up. You'll find some great definitions out there on the Internet of secular progressivism. But we are in a transition, and the foundation of our society's basic worldview, what we 
what we base our education on, what we base our government on, what we base how we judge one another, what we think of as just or what we think of as fair, and, and the basis of how we are expected in society to treat one another. That is very important because it's, it's, it is um, unproductive for a Christian to land in a society and not understand its culture and just burst in and apply our own views without any regard to how it's being viewed by those that we're ministering, speaking to. When we went to Africa, those early years, we really worked at understanding the, the mind of the people that we were with and how they viewed things because that was what gave us the ability to, to tailor our approach and show deference to them and be able to be wise and not just throw all our seeds on the side of the road or on stony ground, but be able to find the good ground because we want it. He that winneth souls, the Bible says, is wise. So we need to understand that our society is transferring the foundation of its morals from a society that basically believes faith in God is the foundation for its laws and its treatment of one another to the idea, the concept of secular progressivism. And I'm not going to get into a wasting time here in this pulpit to talk about all that, but let me give you a, a little, two little Bible examples that maybe help at least give you a way of thinking of these two different ideologies. I want to contrast King David with Nimrod the tyrant. You may remember Nimrod in, the, in, in Genesis was the tyrannical king that subjugated all the people of the world at that time under him and, uh, and um, brought them under a work order together to build the Tower of Babel, to reach up and attain deity. King David, Nimrod the tyrant. What's happening in our nation today is a change of kings. David is going out. Nimrod's coming in. A King David society is founded on faith in God. A King David society or a society founded on faith in God basically believes that there is an absolute truth that founded the world and predated or precedes modern man. And like Israel under King David, when faced with social failures and challenges and problems, that faith in God society always deals with those challenges and problems by looking back to its foundations and reinforcing its faith. And that's how it solves problems. Now, on the other hand, the progressive Nimrod society has a completely different, completely opposite way of seeing itself and dealing with its problems. The, the progressive Nimrod society, if you will, believes that its social failures or its challenges or problems result from old, antiquated ideas that can only be solved by discarding them and replacing them with new ones. And so the Nimrod society is always talking about change. The answer to every problem is to simply change. Get rid of the old. Anything that's traditional is worthless because it's undeveloped. And they're always thinking and talking about enlightenment and elevating. We are 
needing to solve our problems by becoming more enlightened. Everyone in the past was wrong. Correctness lies ahead of us. We need to correct ourselves and we need to get new ways of thinking and new ways of doing things. So the progressive is not going to have a lot of respect for old faith. And they're going to always believe that it is within their power to build that Tower of Babel and rise up and come together and achieve God-like state, achieve deity. Remember, the faith in God society believes God existed before us. He's perfect, and He laid down His perfect laws. We look at the Ten Commandments. We look at the Gospel of Jesus. That was, came from eternity, so we can't improve upon that. We look back to it and adjust ourselves. The progressive says, there was nothing back there that was perfect. We are going to build the perfect. We're going to create the perfect. So they have no respect for faith in God. Eventually, all progressives are going to reject Christ and reject the gospel because they cannot cling to the two. They don't mesh. They don't actually work together. Most people in our society who see themselves as progressives don't really understand what progressivism is. They don't know what they've gotten themselves into. But they will if they stay with it. So, summarizing all this, let me just say that our culture is basically in a transition. We are abandoning faith for progressivism. That is why we are seeing an increase of persecution. It's coming not because people hate God. It's coming not because they even hate church. It's coming because they have been fed an ideology that says to them, if you keep clinging to these old ideas and trying to answer the problems of our society and injustices by pointing back at the past. The past was what created all these problems. You see, they're fighting against Christians because they think we are the ones that want to keep the ideas that created the problems alive. And they're wanting to break out, move ahead, and perfect themselves. As you can see, the progressive does not acknowledge sin. They don't realize that the root problem of man is sin. And no matter how far ahead you run, you're still going to have sin. When you get there, sin will be there. And when you become perfect and build that Tower of Babel, what happened to the Tower of Babel? Let me just finish this by saying, what happened to the Tower of Babel? <laughs> God did not approve of it because it doesn't work. It just ends in. So let me wrap this up by saying that as we are pressing away from faith into progressivism, we are entering an era of cynicism. The cynic. The Bible probably presents one of the greatest examples of cynicism at Jesus' trial when in John chapter 18, Pilate says to Jesus, what is truth? When Jesus said, I have come as a witness to the truth, Pilate looks at him and you can see his face almost just sort of showing disregard. What is truth? Why would you waste your time? Truth is meaningless. He is the perfect cynic. We are living now in a day when our young people, millennials, and people of our generations, if you don't happen to be a millennial here this morning, maybe you're a Gen Xer, maybe you're a baby boomer, maybe you're, I don't know what was before that. Was there anything before that? At any rate, the great generation. So, if you're of any of those previous generations, 
you are faced with this new arrival of cynicism. You know, they don't trust anything, suspect everything. Have you noticed how, how social interaction and social conversation has gone from the objective of social conversation used to be you'd greet people, you'd try to be kind, and the objective was to show sincerity. Now when people meet one another, what's the objective? To be clever, to be able to be sarcastic. Cynicism has permeated our society. Well, let me say to you why this has something to do with the church and why it has something to do with persecution. is because in an era of cynicism, in a cynical society, the management is always to blame. In restaurant, school, government, it's always the fault of the management. In a cynical society, the, whatever governing power governs the society are, is going to be blamed for everything that's not right. And they may be deservedly being blamed, but the point is that is the nature of cynicism. So let me say to you that the more that Christians are perceived as managing public policy, the more intolerant the public is going to become of us. We're upset because we're losing influence over public policy. We're upset because what we believe is fading out of our schools and is fading out of our public life and we are losing our influence over what our society is governed by. That may not be a terrible thing. We think that's persecution and it probably is. But stay with me for a moment. This is the part that may be a little difficult. Wouldn't it be great if the church had less territory to have to defend? When we were in power for over 200 years, we were the central keepers of the flame of ideology and government and society and education. Every time something went wrong in our society, it was the fault of the church. The church was to blame for the racism of slavery. The church was to blame for the greed of the, the burgeoning uh, economies um, and the injustices that were done. The church was to blame for every bad thing that happened in society because we were in charge. We were the management. But what's happening in this new era where we are, we are looked upon with antagonism is we are being pushed out of the command seat. We are no longer the management, which means we're not the people to blame. They're still blaming us, but that's not going to last much longer because as the, as the darkness takes over, they own the problem. They own the system. And so I don't think it's that much of a bad thing for the church to, to lose territory as long as we're not losing the kingdom of God. As, we're, as long as we're not losing who we are in Christ. Because the more that secular progressivism becomes responsible for society, the more it's going to be blamed for the failures of society. And I just think that Christianity is less encumbered with self-defense and prosperous when we are pushed back to the borders of the kingdom of God. It's just something to think about. And then I would say to you this also, like our ancestors before us, 
the early Christian church, the first Christian church, hallelujah, that first Christian church was a minority church in an antagonistic society. The first Christians were outsiders. The first church was an outsider church. They were an underground church. They were a persecuted church. They were not the mainstream. And they lived under persecution and thrived. They thrived because, like our ancestors, intolerance and persecution are going to force true Christians to abandon the quest for popularity and drive us back to our original mission, which is exalting Jesus Christ. More Christians are realizing that we have been getting angry because we're losing popularity. And the quest of churches to try to be popular in the world is going to be their undoing. If we want the revival we've been singing about or talking about, that only comes by going back to the kingdom, by going back to Jesus. Not trying to hold power in the world. Listen, I don't think it's a bad thing that for 200 years the church was popular. Christianity was popular. I'm not criticizing that. But when the mood changes, when society decides they want Nimrod, the worst thing we can do is to try to hold that power. I'm not talking about some of the things you may think I'm talking about. What I'm talking about is our attitude towards persecution. The counterculture religion is not a bad thing. While the intolerance against Christians is most certainly going to increase in America, it may prove to be more fruitful soil in which to thrive as a counterculture faith rather than a faith that is keeping responsibility for social behavior. I would much prefer to be that Christian witness who is standing there saying, well, you've tried all this and it's where's it gotten you? School has failed you. Government has failed you. Everything else has failed you. I'd like to be the one that stands and says, you need to try Jesus. Let me tell you about Jesus. Stick to the light. Lift up the light. Amen? Amen. So some things to think about. One of the signs of the church is persecution. I don't say go out and get yourself persecuted because you have to behave badly to do that. I say love the world as Jesus did. Behave as he did. Lift him up. Be kind. Let this world around you change as it changes. Be accountable as you can, but be ready. Be ready to let that light shine. Because most people that right now are not responding to the gospel, they will start seeing the light when we come under the magnifying glass of persecution. It makes the world see what's inside of Christians. Stand with me this morning. Praise the Lord, because He is Lord at all times, on the mountain and in the valley. Hallelujah. And Lord, I just praise You and thank You this morning. Your loving kindness is better than the changes of life. And so I just say, thank You, Father. Thank You, Lord, 
that we are citizens in the kingdom of God, that we are sons and daughters in your forever family. I pray today that you would make us to be effective in a changing world around us. Help us, Lord, to fight for those things that are eternal. Help us to know when to not be caught fighting for things that are just meant to trap us. Father, may your name be the weapon that we arm ourselves with. Your word, thank you. We take our refuge in you. You are our king as we live as pilgrims in this life and in this land. Anoint us. Make Faith Christian Church, Lord, to rise up and to be a people of light. Help us to be successful, Lord, in shining for you. In Jesus' name.